Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, dancer and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi, Pamela, and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens for our 81st episode. Hello, hello. 81st, I'm feeling old. (laughs) Yes, we all are feeling old. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just because it's autumn. (laughs) Yeah. What's been happening? Um, Well, speaking of autumn, it's almost the end of term, um, which is always, you know, you start to feel like, why am I so tired? Why is everybody so cranky? Oh, yes, it's the end of term. Yes, yes. (laughs) So, um, yes, we're slowing down a little bit and looking forward to the holidays very much. What about you? We harvested my um, creepy shallots, (laughs) my enormously oversized shallots, and our creepy carrots and our spring onions and we basically had like a share box at the front of our little free library and they went in a night I was like what Mm -hmm. it was a full box (laughs) so we're like anything we're basically subsistence farmers now like in our minds so then I've ripped everything out and I've put in new potting mix and I've put the next crop in so we've got garlic and spinach and cos lettuce, but I think I, I kill the spinach every every time. It's just too too delicate. Mm. So anyway. Well, you're doing well. My my veggie patch is depleted. I'm about to pull everything up and let it have a rest. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a little man that walks past who's become my friend. He's an elderly gentleman, and he tells me all about what I should be doing, and I seem to do nothing like he's very sweet but he's like no no you don't plant now and I always like oh yeah okay and the next day I plant something (laughs) so (laughs) he must shake his head every time he walks past but he's a very sweet friend anyway that's all we've been doing other than me Uh doing crazy hours in the library which has been wonderful and lovely and crazy so Mm. yes (laughs) anyway tell us what is the title of today's book so I'm doing two books today and the first one is Huda and Me by H. Hayek, published by Allen and Unwin on March the 30th, 2021. Oh, and would you share the jacket blurb with us? Yeah. When their parents have to travel to Beirut unexpectedly, 12-year-old Akil and his six siblings are horrified to be left behind in Melbourne with the dreaded Aunt Amel as their babysitter. Things do not go well and Akil's naughty little sister, Huda, hatches a bold plan to escape. After stealing Aunt Amel's credit card to buy plane tickets to Lebanon, Huda persuades her reluctant favourite brother to come with her. So begins Huda and Akil's hair-raising and action-packed journey to reunite with their parents half a world away in a city they've grown up dreaming about but have never seen. Oh, that sounds very cute. 
And what genre would you class this as? So I think it would be contemporary um, and it's also hashtag own voices. Yes, wonderful. (laughs) We seem to have some own voices books coming our way, which is very exciting. Mm. And what is the estimated word count? Uh, I think it's about 45,000 words. I, did, I don't think I did a proper estimate of that, but that's my guess. Well, as we know, our estimates are full of rubbish. So hopefully yeah. your estimate's close. <laughs> I should have asked, but I forgot. Anyway, <laughs> And tell us about it. So Huda and Akil have a large loving family with five other brothers and sisters. But Huda and Akil, who are close in age, have a special bond. Nine-year-old Huda is loving but also a bit cheeky and Akil feels a duty to take care of her. When their parents travel to Beirut to take care of their grandmother, Akil makes a promise to his mother that he will protect his sister, but little does he realise what that will mean. Their mother asks a friend to take care of the children who range from young adult Omar down to baby Rahid. But the friend, whom they call Aunt Amel, is not all she seems. She decides that this is the perfect opportunity for her to have a holiday. She puts the younger children to work before school and until late at night. She doesn't let the twins go to school and instead makes them bake all day and she has Omar drive her everywhere like a chauffeur. And baby Rahid, she keeps to herself. She won't let the others see him. What's worse, she hides their only phone so the children cannot contact their parents. Faced with two weeks of this treatment, Huda comes up with a plan to fly to Beirut and find her parents. And what else can Akil do but go with her? Akil is surprised by Huda's resourcefulness and is swept up in her plan and before he knows it is landing in the country he has dreamed of visiting and on his way to find their parents. So the book is told in two timelines, the current timeline which begins on the plane from Melbourne and the past timeline leading up to that point at which point the story continues in one timeline and you'll hear all about that in the interview with Huda. Oh that sounds very clever. Yeah. It was, yeah. And what was your overall enjoyment? Oh, well, you said it was, it sounded cute and it, it is. It's a really sweet story with a lot of heart and charm and some gentle humour interspersed. The character of Aunt Amel is larger than life and she acts as comic relief as well as the trickster throwing the children into adventure. I love the tenderness of the family who I didn't realise until afterwards are actually based on the author's own family. The author is Huda Hayek. And on top of the aeroplane adventure, is this own voices story about being a Muslim Lebanese Australian kid and also about being part of a large loving family. I wanted to meet Huda and Akil and eat some hummus and bread and Labni with them, which was oh. you know, really sweet. And then I did meet Huda in the interview, oh, but fantastic. the real life version, she was absolutely lovely. So, yeah, do listen to the interview at the end of this episode. Oh, can't wait. I can't wait to listen. And who would mm. love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Um, it's pitched at ages 9 to 13, and, yeah, I'd say that's right. Um, and it pro- probably could go even lower. There's nothing particularly scary in it or, or you know, older. Um, and it's a great one for children who love Remy Lay's Fly on the Wall. It's sort of a similar age, similar kind of story, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Giselle um, snaffled it up and read it and really liked it, so... Um, She's nine, so there you go. <laughs> Target yeah, <perfect>. audience. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you loved it. Uh, So what is the title of your book today, Julie? Yes, mine is Pause by Kate Foster. 
illustrated by Sarah Davis, published by Walker on April 7, I think, 2021. I think April 7 is going to be a fairly big day for publications. Yeah. A few books coming up. Um, so would you share the back jacket blurb with us, please? Sure. Everything is changing for 11-year-old Alex. As an autistic person, change can be terrifying. With the first day of high school only a couple of months away, Alex is sure that having a friend by his side will help. So he's devised a plan. Impress the kids at school by winning a trophy at the Paws dog show with his trusty sidekick, Kevin. This should be a walk in the park, right? Oh, nice. I, I've um, seen Kate on Twitter promoting this and I was, I've been really interested. Yep. Um, what genre would you class it as? It's a middle grade contemporary with an autistic protagonist by an own voices author. So there you go. Another own voices book. Mm, and right up your alley, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the estimated word count? I'd say it was around 50, but as we know, we are terrible at estimating, but <laughs> I should have asked Kate, but I didn't as well. <laughs> so. Okay, uh, so can you tell us more about it? Yeah. Alex doesn't always read the signs of what people are saying, and sometimes noise can overwhelm him because Alex's brain works a bit differently. Some call it being neurodivergent. Others call it autism. Alex finds it all very confusing regardless. His best friend Kevin, however, totally gets him and will always be his friend. Kevin is, of course, a dog, and that is fine, but Alex wants human friends too. And after all the social skills classes he's endured as part of therapy, he knows just how to get them by entering the soon-to-be-coming-to-town pause contest, winning the main prize, and Jared and his posse will have to become friends with him. Oh, lovely. So the pause does actually refer to a dog. Yes. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, so overall enjoyment? So told in first person, this was such a delightful, heartfelt, entertaining and enlightening read. It gave such a wonderful insight into the mind of how an autistic 11-year-old child would function. Alex's constant inner dialogue was so utterly endearing and autistic people, as I know firsthand, having an autistic five-year-old can be incredibly literal and some may say completely stuck in the details. So it was really enlightening to hear exactly how Alex's mind worked and processed when faced with conflicting ideas or body language as opposed to what was actually being spoken. We go really deep into the mind of Alex, but also from his point of view, we saw who was worthy of his friendship and who perhaps wasn't, just by his observations, which I think is actually really incredible, incredibly useful when kids at the target age of this book are actually still learning to decode situations, regardless of their neurodivergence or typicality. So the ending was heartfelt and satisfying, and Alex's um, and it really showed Alex's best day ever um, and how he, you know, he hoped his life would play out. Now, I won't spoil the ending, but I will tell you that some wins can't be quantified by a shiny trophy. The final page in this wonderful book had me beaming with hope 
not just because Alex found triumph in ways he'd never imagined possible, but a book like this exists and it will hopefully help other neurodivergent kids as well as raise awareness for those neurotypicals as well. At the very back of the book, there were some discussion questions. I read each and every one and I am convinced that they are absolutely essential reading to help kids unpack the themes as well as understand the kind of struggle that Alex and so many other children and adults with autism face. Wow, it's amazing. So needed. And I, I can just imagine all of the um, librarian and teacher listeners now they're just, just pricking up. Snaffling yeah. it up. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? This is for nine plus, And I have to say this is definitely going to um, end up in the top 10, like the end of year top 10. Yeah. Um, I would I would say it's it's for neurodivergent kids to realize they are not alone, but in equal measures, neurotypical kids. Um, mm. And I think it will go a long way in gaining insight and awareness, and also maybe just encourage those kids to befriend other kids when they are struggling to fit in and find their place in a loud and overstimulate overstimulating and often confusing world. So yeah, this one is for everyone. Um, I certainly will be recommending it to be acquired by my library. And mm. of course, a copy will be going to Giselle's library. And yeah, I just, I, I feel very passionate, obviously, about autism, having an autistic child. But I was so blown away by how Kate wrote this. Um, just, she just did it so well. And like Giselle's read quite a few books with autistic protagonists. Um, we've seen about three or four, I think, in the last couple of years. And um, she hasn't always totally gotten what it meant, um, I guess, because autism was still very new to her. But this mm -hmm. one, she just she just really soaked it in and, and really enjoyed it. And so I thought, you know what, if, if she's soaking it up and really, really enjoying it, then I really hope that other kids will too. Yeah, for sure. I think um, I might have to add this to our homeschool um, list as well. Uh, yeah. I have, I've got a nephew, as you know, who yes. is, um, who has autism and, um, you know, he's, he's an adult now actually, um, but it would have been good for him yeah. and for us to have had this, you know, when he was younger so that it would just, you know, just better understanding of, of and you the know, unique sort of thing yeah. about the end of the book is that they, they have the teaching notes included. Like often you hear, oh, there's teaching notes for my book and they're on a website somewhere obscure that you have to go searching for. But what mm. I loved about this was they stuck it in the back of the book and an they were just so well done. And I actually said to Kate, do you know who did them? And she, she hadn't um, she hadn't been informed of that. And I was like, well, I'll be finding out because honestly, if it's a contractor, if you ever get a book published, that girl's doing my teaching notes. <laughs> so mm. anyway. This is, this is Walker Books, wasn't yeah. it? So, I'm going well to ask. <laughs> I'm yeah, going to ask I, I our girl on the inside. Yeah, that'd be great. And I do know a couple of people who do teacher notes. Um so they are out there, but quite often it's the authors um, paying them to do it. 
Oh yeah. You know, I mean, I, the- I have teaching notes from both for all seven of my books and um, Jen Graham did mine and she's wonderful. Uh, hers were amazing as well, but she's sort of gone back into full-time teaching. So it's sort of not something she wanted to, you know, be focusing on as much. Um, and I haven't published another book, so hadn't really had to go there, but um, yeah, mm. there's nothing like a good teaching note. I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, and to not have to pay for it yourself, to have the publisher just do it and, and put yes. it in there is, is excellent. I think there needs to be more. And the book I'll talk about next, um, it doesn't have teacher notes, but you'll hear the, um, yeah, with the back, it's, it's just so handy to have that contextual information. Um, mm. Yeah. So tell us about your next book. Yeah. So um, we're really going deep this week, I think. Aren't we? <laughs> Two Own Voices and this one, um, so this book is The Heroes of the Secret Underground by Suzanne Gervais, published by Angus and Robertson Books, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, on April the 7th, 2021. And I didn't know this until Suzanne told me, but um, the reason why it's being published on April the 7th is because April the 8th is a Holocaust Remembrance Day. And um, as you'll gather, this book is set during the Holocaust or partly set during the Holocaust. So that was a very deliberate um yeah target date so there you go wonderful and would you share the jacket blurb with us yeah louis lives with her brothers bert and teddy in a hotel run by their grandparents it is one of sydney's grand old buildings rich in history and in secrets when a rose gold locket once thought lost is uncovered it sends louis and her brothers spinning back in time back to a world at war Budapest in the war of 1944, where their grandparents are hiding secrets of their own. From best-selling author Suzanne Gervais comes a heart-racing time-slip story inspired by her own family's escape from Budapest during the Holocaust. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to devour this one. And what genre would you class it as? Um, Well, it's time-slip historical fictions. I think... I guess I don't know if time slip is its own genre, but yeah, I um, don't either. So it seems partly, like it's becoming, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it, it is historical fiction, but not fully set in you know historical yeah. time. And what is the estimated word count? Wow, here's another one I didn't check and mm-hmm. only guess. So I think it's around <laughs> 50. <laughs> around fifty. It's not a long read, but yeah, you know, sort of average so, for a middle grade. So tell us about it. Yeah, so Louis and her brothers live in a grand hotel in Sydney, which, you know, that setting is right up your alley, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The hotel is run by her grandparents while her parents tour as musicians. Her grandparents do not talk about their past, but when Louis finds a rose gold locket and then an attic room full of treasures, she and her brothers are plunged right into that past. Louis and her brothers find themselves in 1944 Budapest and they meet their grandparents as children. Zoltan, their grandfather, runs supplies to a children's safe house protected by the Swiss cross. Vrushka, their grandmother, is a young Jewish girl who's forced to leave her parents behind and flee the Nazis, the same Nazis who steal her rose gold locket, which Louis realises is the same locket that she found back in 2000. Louis and her brothers make their way with Naomi, a mysterious girl who appears in both their current time and the past, to the glass house, an old glass factory that once belonged to a Jewish man. The glass house is a children's safe house. 
Before they can get in, however, little brother Teddy goes missing. Louis and her brother Bert must make their way through the glass house and across Nazi-occupied Budapest to find their brother, locate the locket, and then find their way back to the year 2000 and home. Oh, wow. Formidable task. Oh, absolutely. And, and um, you'll hear more about the glass house in um, my interview with Suzanne and, you know, saying that they need to make their way through the glass house sounds um, like it might be easy, but it was absolutely packed full of, um, you know, people, mostly children um, being protected in there, just thousands upon thousands of people. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, that's what was a difficult task. And, and, and this was a real place. So. Oh, wow. I have to Google that now. Yeah. And what was your overall enjoyment? Yeah, um, I get a shiver every time I think about Holocaust stories. Last episode, I talked about the Dutch side of World War II. And this episode, it's the Hungarian point of view. I think any author that attempts to write about war and the Holocaust has a huge amount of ambition and tenacity. And to write about it for children, a hefty dose, a dose of tact and delicacy because it's such a tough topic to present to children. Mm. Um, and Suzanne has balanced this brilliantly. She's presented a lesser-known angle of the Holocaust in a digestible way for children. And we talk about this in the interview, but it, it, it's actually a story from Suzanne's heart because the characters of Zoltan and Vrushka are based on her own grandparents who fled Nazism and Stalinism, her grandfather having lost many family members to Auschwitz, Suzanne brings in so much symbolism and culture in a way that is relatable to the child reader, which helps with the dark parts. And, and there are dark parts of, because, of course, we're talking about the Holocaust, mm. but they are beautifully balanced with the light. Suzanne's careful storytelling encourages children to think, to delve deeper, and, and yeah, she talks about And I wrote this before I did the interview. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, we do talk about this in the interview. Um this is such a worthy story, so delicately handled. I know that Megan Daly, um, librarian extraordinaire, teacher librarian extraordinaire, um, who she's uh, Children's Daily. Children's you know, Books Daily she runs. Children's Books Daily, And also yeah. your kids next read. Yeah. Yeah. So Megan has said once or twice that she sees every year in the grade sixes in her school an upswing in interest in World War II literature um, so this is definitely one to add to that list. Um, and I think I think because um, last year was the 100 years um, centenary, it's, it is, I, think, I do think there's been an upswing in um, Holocaust books yeah. lately. Um, so, yeah, as with last week's um, book that I reviewed from Stella Street to Amsterdam and then We Are Wolves, which I'm currently reading to my boys, and also Beyond Belief by Dee White, which I reviewed last year. So... Those are all um, great additions to your grade six World War II library. Mm. And I'm, I'm definitely adding this to my homeschool literature list because I know my boys will connect with the story. They really are interested in, in that sort of thing. So, yeah. Oh, and who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Um, yeah, it's recommended for nine and up, and I'd agree with that. Um, but, yeah, I would advise caution with sensitive younger readers. Mm. So, yeah, it's quite yep. a full on. Yeah, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Well, that's it for our reviews, but stay tuned as Pamela chats to H. Hayek about Huda and me. Happy listening, folks. Huda Hayek is the second youngest of seven children born in Adelaide to Lebanese-Australian parents. She has worked as a primary school teacher in Melbourne's West and as a journalist. 
But above all, writing stories involving unique kids with unique backgrounds has been her passion. Huda enjoys exploring themes of identity, what it means to be Australian, Muslim and Lebanese. Welcome to the Middle Grade Mavens, Huda. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to have you. So can you tell us how this book, Huda and Me, came about? What was the initial spark? Um, I think I think really it goes back uh, decades where through, I'm 36 years old now, and I've just, you know, for all that time I've heard stories about the things that I would do when I was little, really starting from the age of two. And my siblings seem to always um just laugh at I couldn't remember half of these stories that I would do all the the things that I would get up to as a kid a really young kid anyway and then they kind of form this life of its own like the, the the these stories that Huda did all these things that Huda did and so I would they'd laugh about them and then I would reflect on them as well and I thought how funny it would be to put them into a book um, and compile all these hilarious moments all these horrible things <laughs> that I had done as a child um, and so I got some advice and um, I realized it had to be more of a story than just a mishmash and so I kind of used these real characters um, which are myself and my siblings but in this fictional kind of way to kind of create this funny little book about our lives and yeah I think that's pretty much the summary of it. Yeah and as I was reading I had the feeling that the siblings were a bunch of really fun loving and well-rounded characters and then I realized later that these characters were based on real people. Your, your <laughs> well that's good that works then. Oh, that's so fun. So um, in, in the hierarchy of your siblings um, in age, where do you come? Um, so I'm the sixth. Um, so the eldest is 11 years older than me. And then the youngest is two years younger than me. So yeah, there's about a, over a decade um, between all of us. Mm. Um, and so you pulled your family into this story and some little anecdotes. Mm -hmm. Where, how far did it go? Like, did you get up to any of these great big, you know, journeys like in the book or was that the, the main plot sort of fictional? Yeah, main main plot was fictional, although the um, Aunt Amal in the story, she was based on a real person. She was someone who came to stay with us for a little while, but she had um, three kids and they were, we just... I don't know if they hated us or if we hated them, but it was kind of neutral. <laughs> and this lady, we'll just call her auntie for the sake of the story. Mm -hmm. um, she she would want us to always clean up and always, you know, take responsibility for ourselves. And our parents were working at the time, so she was around a lot. And we just we were kind of like used to looking after ourselves, um, like the oldest kids would look after the youngest kids in our house. And mm. it was just like that. Mum and dad had to work. And, um, yeah, so she was around and she was kind of trying to dictate to us how to what to do. And honestly, in retrospect, everything she was saying was normal and make them <laughs> but um at the time it was just like what she's asking us to make our beds mm -hmm. and then she'd call on for us and we would all split like we would just we would all like just someone would hide behind the, the wheelie bin someone would hide in the chicken coops and this was like this is like completely fact um mm -hmm. and then she would come out to try and find us someone would be under the bed and then she, usually Soha was the one who got away with it. She was always, I think she was near the chickens or something and she had her spot where she'd go. And then 
after you know a few of us would court would have to do the job and the others would I don't know whatever run off and play <laughs> and, and that was and that was real but um obviously we didn't get to escape from her she ended up she was just there for a time staying over and then she left okay but I, I love- guess it would have been a dream to do something fun like that run yeah. away. oh yeah and I love that because I was that was going to be my next question was um that the character of Auntie Mel she she adds such a touch of the ridiculous and the comic relief and I just I did wonder if she was real or not so that's quite yeah well yeah yes and no yeah yeah um so a strong driver for the plot in this book is the closeness of the family and in particular Huda and Akil yourself and your brother and I love that the book explores different sibling relationships and I love that Akil felt so protective of Huda even when she was the more confident one was this something that was Mm -hmm. noticeable growing up the different dynamics between your different siblings um a little bit but I suppose maybe yes when we were a little bit younger but then when you get into your teen years everything goes a bit pear-shaped um I think that we all kind of were pretty independent um and Akil was very much the good one growing up he was very kind and would always do the right thing and always um mum says to this day actually that he was always the most well behaved out of all her seven kids um I suppose we because Akil and I in real life there's only probably 18 months between us we probably were closer than the other siblings but we did fight a lot as well because he was he's very righteous and he would see the things that I was getting up to and he he didn't like if I was, you know, for example, pinching money off mum's dressing table, that would really upset him. <laughs> so he, he would, so even though we we're really close in some ways, he didn't always agree with some of the things that I did. And although in the story, he's a lot more um, flexible about those things, I suppose. Right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is not only a story about a big family, it's also about a Muslim Lebanese Australian family. How has growing up Muslim Lebanese in Australia shaped you as a writer, do you think? Um, I think it just gave me, I think it, to be honest, I think it's a completely normal, um, thing to be an Australian Lebanese Australian writer, because that is all I've known and um, because I work at a very uh, my current workplace is um, a very cultural place as well there are, I see hundreds of kids like myself as well so I think it's kind of very normal for for me and thousands of kids and you know adults across um, Australia to be these combination of things I guess how it shaped me is that it just kind of I, I don't take myself too seriously at all so everything is very I like to see the human or a lot of things and I think drawing on all the aspects of myself and what makes me um, and putting it in some kind of um, some kind of story to kind of show that this is a normal might not be someone else's type of norm, but it's completely normal to many people, including myself. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, it's probably a good time to 
you know, your age sort of having grown up here, whereas maybe a decade or two before might have been quite a bit harder mm. in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as a teen, um, I didn't embrace um, the different, you know, the different parts of myself, mainly being the Lebanese part and the Muslim part. Like that was something that I didn't, I wasn't, um, you know, that I did try to hide away because I just wanted to be like every other kid. Mm. And I was, I went to a public school. And so I just wanted to do, I did do everything else that every other kid did. And but when I was at home, you know, I knew I knew that we ate falafels and I knew that we, you know, mm-hmm. maybe went to the mosque on Fridays or we celebrated Eid. Um, but I did keep that very separate. Whereas, yeah, coming back to what you said at this point in my life, I'm just like, yep, yeah, that's me. All of it. Yeah, that's all me. So let's talk about it. And I'm, I'm so happy to be able to do that. Yeah, that's great. I, I actually have. um my brother-in-law's wife is Lebanese and I love mm-hmm. going over and having all the Lebanese food. They're amazing cooks. Mm. So. It's good mm. stuff. Like I've eaten oh. everything and I still go back to the Lebanese stuff because it's just such a good diet. Oh, it is. It's it's probably my favourite cuisine, like oh, cuisine. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you call it. When when I was going to use that word too. Yeah. Well, so I came over, um, I'm from England, so, you know, and similar age to you. And when I came over, I was surprised at just how, just what a melting pot Melbourne was um, at the Mm -hmm. time. And, you know, I was exposed to so many cultures that I'd never been exposed to in England. And I remember going over to a friend's house and she was Italian and she showed me her mum's um, kitchen in the garage they had a, you know a separate kitchen for <laughs> food and I was like wow like yeah. two kitchens you know so um mm-hmm. yeah I, yeah there's a whole other way of living for many yeah. many other people that we just like you know we've never been exposed to but there's it's such a beautiful um you know such beauty in each culture that you know we just have to appreciate I think yeah absolutely um and so you know so you you wrote about yourself um when you were a girl would you have liked this kind of book did you feel that these kinds of books were missing or you know was that not yeah. an issue yeah um it's it's funny because I wasn't a big reader at all um for pretty much most of primary school I was yeah I was I hated reading I wasn't um what's how do you say it I suppose I wasn't stereotypically clever um and yeah I was so any uh, every book that I like whenever we had to bring readers home or um homework or anything like that I really struggled so books were actually the enemy for me so I didn't actually start reading um I I didn't start reading books I suppose um, for leisure until high school and then it didn't even occur to me at the time that I wasn't represented that's that's Mm. like a whole nother step like I didn't Mm. even I didn't even realize and then once you see one or two books as you get older you're like wow I there was nothing like this when I was growing up like Mm. it was just kind of like you know I need to morph into what the status quo is and I I did that but it wasn't it doesn't make it right 
Um, mm. And so, yes, now as an adult, I'm like, wow, there's got to be another way. And for all those kids who I mentioned before, those thousands of little Muslim and, um, you know, kids or kids from another culture that are across this country, there should be something for them that they can see themselves in if they're looking for it. That's what they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And what a fun book, honestly. Um, it, so it would be pretty hard for a couple of children to make their way to Beirut unaccompanied. <laughs> but you have cleverly worked this out for, for your characters of Huda and Akil. How did you manage to work out all of the details required for this to happen, to make this fun, fun story of, you know, that, that sits on top of all yeah. this other family stuff? <laughs> um, it's probably too, research was one thing. So mm. research was a big thing, but um, I travel quite a lot to go back to Perth. That's where my family is. So I'm in Melbourne, all my family's in Perth. So I go there um, three or four times a year. And just as I would travel back and forth, and it's usually on school holidays, I would see these unaccompanied minors. And sometimes I was seated next to them. And usually, you know, they're going to see dad because mum and dad aren't together anymore. They're going to go see dad in the other state or they're going to visit their grandparents or something. Mm -hmm. So I'd keep talking to these kids if I was um, placed next to them or sometimes I'd just observe them and see how the um, the air hostesses, you know, uh, you know, care for them, like mm -hmm. make sure they're on first, get them off last. Um, they have these special tags. So it was all through observation, probably over a 15-year period of travelling back and forth. Oh, wow. um, and then, and then, just realizing okay for overseas it's just another you know there's a few more layers let's let's figure them out and mm -hmm. yeah it's something that is actually completely doable <laughs> if, you, if you do it like Huda and Akil yeah which scares me a little but anyway <laughs> yeah right <laughs> as a mother you know um mm -hmm. so as you were as you were observing these children over this time period were you thinking that you were going to include this in the book or were you just curious um no I wasn't thinking I was I was actually fascinated by these kids like how brave they are because at their ages like some of them uh you know probably you know at 10 I couldn't do that I wouldn't be yeah. brave enough to have gone on a plane I don't think yeah. um but these kids were really cool so like yeah like I wasn't thinking that I was just more like in such admiration of them like you know just getting on with it and you know, going on these trips by themselves. And so I think, you know, if you see it that often, it kind of sticks in your head. And then when you, when, when it was time for me to write a book, when things all aligned and I, I could really just draw on that and say, oh, that's how it works. And that's, mm. that's, um, that's the system, I suppose. Mm. That's awesome. And of course, security would have changed a little bit over the years, but <laughs> <laughs> we hope. Yeah. Um, so I love how you have um, two intertwined timelines, one of the current, which is the journey that Huda and Akil are taking to get to Lebanon mm -hmm. beginning at the airport and then also the one in the past, which is all of the events leading up to that opening page at the airport. How did you approach writing the book this way? I mean, how did you approach that sort of structure? Um, well, I love, I love, well, most writers, um, like to start well I can't say most writers I like to start with the action so mm. I like to get to like the first chapter is my favorite out of all the chapters I suppose because it's where it's all coming together 
Um, and so I wanted to start there, but go back. Um, and so through the writing process, I thought I would start at that point and then go back. But then I realized that there's also another point, like there's the forward because, okay, the ending isn't at um, Melbourne airport when they're about to leave, mm. which is the first chapter. That's not the ending. So I need to go back, but then I also need to go forward um, in time to when they get to Beirut, et cetera, et cetera. But I need to let everybody know what's happened in the past. So that was the way that I thought was actually, it's probably, probably wasn't the easiest way to do it. But at the <laughs> time I thought it was um, a good way to do it. And then as I was writing, I was actually going back and forward every chapter I was doing, I was doing it um, chapter by chapter. And then I realized, hang on, there's, there's another way. Yeah. Write all of the, <laughs> write all of the past, write all of the future, yeah. and then we can work it out. So yeah. I probably figured that out three quarters of the way in um, to help it flow a bit better. And of course, then with the rewrite and the redrafting, it all smoothened out anyway. But um, yeah, that was my main purpose. I wanted to start at that point where they're at the airport and they're freaking out because they might not get on the plane. Yeah. Um, and then I just, I had to do that. So the rest of it had to work somehow. Yeah, it was a great place to start. I really, because you got, it was so much tension and drama right at the beginning. And then, you know, that, that backstory fed into it, but that backstory had a lot of tension and drama and, and humour as well. Mm. And then, mm. you know, there's the anticipation of, do they make it, you know? So mm. it was great. And it really, it really, it really held up that, that, um, yeah, I want to say tension, but there's another word I'm thinking of, but it just, it just held all the way through, um, which was, mm. was great. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, can you talk about your journey from finishing that first draft to publication? Was that a long period? Was there a lot of editing? How did that work? um from the first draft to publication yet yeah, there was it was it was actually the story there were different characters um well wait, yeah there were more characters in the first draft um than there were in the actual the, the book um and there were some different twists and turns and it was a little bit slower paced so with the editing process some things had to be sped up and some characters who didn't have much of a role had to be cut and, um, you know, there was a complete rewrite in some sections as well. And the ending, um, yeah, was was the same, but the route to get there was completely different. So with a really good editor, mine was Elise Jones, mm -hmm. Alan and Unwin. Um, she, she, sorry? We know Elise Jones, yep. Yeah, she helped guide me to make the book better um, and to make it quicker and to make it. And she, yeah, she's just brilliant because she knows she, she wanted me to be, um, she wanted the, the story to go as it was, but just to make it the best it can be. And I guess that is the job of an editor at the end of the day, but she's just superb. So I'll just toot her horn all day if I can. Um, <laughs> yeah, so with that, there's, there was, I'd probably say there was a 50% change in some of the, in the book um, during the editing process. Okay, 
Interesting. And was that a, a like a was that a tight process? Was that a short sort of time frame that you needed to do it in, or um, did you have time to sort of think about it a bit? Um, I I can tell you in terms of days and weeks. I don't know really what other authors go through. So I think it was about a month or two, month or two maybe okay. that um, the major rewrite happened, and then there was another one um, a little while after that too, and that was much less um much less work to do and a tighter time as well um for the period that um I was doing the big rewrite I actually was I actually hold myself up in an apartment for four or five days mm. to get it get it done so I just like was just working like a machine like just eat sleep write you know just wow. for four or five days straight <laughs> and that was the only way that I could manage it was to like live it and breathe it until mm. I had knocked out the majority. So, um, yeah, and that was good because I had my husband and my kids at home <laughs> looking after each other. And yeah, that was the thing that worked for me. Wow. Yeah. And um, so this is coming out, you know, it's, it's 2021. We've had the nightmare of year 2020. You've managed to... Mm -hmm miss all of that did that did any of that affect you last year in terms of the timelines um not so much I think working from home was both a blessing and a curse in some ways like it was hard especially mm. with a couple of kids um and the homeschooling part of it but at the same time it just you know cut out a lot of extracurricular yeah. things that oh sorry phone um it cut out a lot of the extracurricular things that we um, would normally be doing and it was meant I didn't have to you know drop kids off to school do all those kind of things so it was actually probably um, a blessing in terms of um, being able to do what I had to do to get this book um, ready for publication. Mm. And so as we know this is your debut novel are we looking ahead at more work coming from you? I hope so. Yeah, I'm working on something at the moment. Um, and yes, I'm excited. I'm excited about that. But who knows where it'll go. Oh, great. Well, I'll keep my eye out. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So Huda and Me is out now in all good bookstores. Where can our listeners find you if they want to find out more? So you can find me on my website at hayek.com or on Instagram, um, misshudah, which is ms.hudah.h. And that's where I'll be found. Fantastic. So thank you so much for joining me today, Huda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for stopping by Middle Grade Mavens. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find Julie online, stop by julieandgrassobooks.com and to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckerman.net.